What we recommended was that a new form of qualification be created in the form of a, a higher diploma. And that would give a neat sequence then of students being able to, in, in either the vet or a higher ed sectors, move through diplomas, a higher diploma, and then to some postgraduate diplomas. It also, I think, deals with the problem of that postgraduate diplomas and certificates are often comprised of rebadged undergraduate knowledge because there's not a shorter form qualification that immediately below the postgraduate level. Hello and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre for Vocational Education Research, or NCVER for short. I'm Steve Davis and today's topic is qualification design. Our Vocational Voices today are Simon Walker, Managing Director NCVER, and Peter Noonan, Professor of Tertiary Education at Victoria University's Mitchell Institute. Welcome to you both. Hello, Steve. Hi, Steve. Now, the final report of the review of the Australian Qualifications Framework, or AQF, was released back on the 24th of October this year, 2019. The AQF is the national policy for regulated qualifications in Australia's education and training system. And Peter, you were the chair of the expert review panel. What had changed internationally and domestically since the last review to warrant a new investigation? Uh Steve, I think the uh, the simple answer is that when the after the AQF was last reviewed, the advisory council over seeing the AQF at the time was abolished, and the Commonwealth gave an undertaking that the AQF would be would be reviewed. And so, I think the simple answer is that it was probably um, being faithful or consistent with that undertaking. Having said that, there had been also a lot of um, changes, of course, in, in the labour market. The impact of artificial intelligence and digital technology has really accelerated. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about the purposes of senior secondary school, uh, major changes in the labour market, and also the rise of uh, what's been commonly referred to as, uh, as micro-credentials or shorter-form credentials and a lot more interest in the use of those. So for a whole range of reasons, I think the government felt that it was time that the framework as a whole be comprehensively reviewed. And were there also some changes internationally as far as frameworks are concerned? Look, not particularly. I think most of the qualification frameworks have are always going through a process of evolution. I think it's pretty clear that the European ECF, the credit and qualifications framework in Europe is getting a lot more uh, traction and and interest and certainly even within the United Kingdom, for example, um, with Scotland, Wales, Ireland, UK all having their own frameworks, there's been a major project to better align them and a similar project amongst uh, ASEAN countries in Australia. So there's, there's probably been quite a lot of focus on regional development. I'm not convinced myself looking at the um, at the different frameworks that they've changed that much in, in themselves, although New Zealand had also began the process of looking at dealing with micro-credentials. All right, we'll come to some of those topics shortly, but uh, the report, uh, or the review report, the final report was released back on October 24, as I mentioned. When will the government consider the findings from your panel? I can't 
give you a precise answer on that, Steve, because having handed the report over to the two ministers, to Ministers Cash and Tian, um, one in relation to the skills sector, the vet sector, and the other in relation to schools and senior secondary and higher education, both the Education COAG Councils and the COAG Skills Council will need to formally consider the report hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, but you'd probably be aware that in the skills space there's a very big process of reform going on through the Council of Australian Governments more generally and I would think that consideration of the AQF would also have to fit in with the broader approach to reforming the VET system uh, rather than being looked at uh, rather being looked at separately. I mean, I think we should know by the end of the year whether whether the councils have considered it by the end of the year or or at, at, at meetings early next year. But I'm um, now that we've handed the report in, I'm no longer involved, so I can't give you a, can't give you a, an informed answer. All right. Well, let's sift through just some of the the main themes that. Uh covered in the report and and one of those areas that's very topical in vet circles is micro-credentials. Peter, what definition did the review panel use for micro-credentials? In the final report we had commissioned some advice from Professor Beverly Oliver who's ex-Deakin University, who's done a lot of work in the space and the definition she used which we adopted in the final report was credentials or qualifications that are additional, alternative, complementary or part of formal AQF qualifications. And our interest was essentially in the ones that are complementary to the AQF or are part of the AQF. What I mean by that is where an institution or an industry or a group of providers take an existing longer for the accredited AQF credential and break it off, break it up or break bits of it up and offer it as a shorter course offering, um, or where you've got um, an extant, an external non-AQF qualification, which someone wants to recognise or count towards an AQF qualification. Now, of course, that could occur through credit arrangements, but a lot of institutions are looking for something far more systematic and visible than that, so that it's quite automatic that if you complete this micro-credential, it will be counted as, as part of your qualification. I would say one thing, Steve, there's been a lot of enthusiasm about micro-credentials. I'd really point out that they've been around for decades um, and those who spent any time in the TAFE sector would well and truly understand the whole raft of short courses and evening courses that have been running TAFE and in Melbourne, for example, in the Council of Adult Education for, for decades and decades. Um, and then within universities, centres for continuing education as well would often run shorter and longer form non-accredited courses. And there's a whole range of um, industry certified training, IT management training and so on. So it's not as if the, the, the issue of shorter form and micro-credentials hasn't been around, it has been around for a long time, I think the renewed interest is in its relationship to the AQF um, and that's how we got involved. What we weren't inclined to do was to open the AQF up to recognising individual shorter form credentials, micro-credentials in their own right um, because there could potentially be hundreds of them and the quality assurance that administrative processes in doing that would probably frankly 
um, kill the goose that laid the golden egg. I still want to dive into a little bit more on that topic. Before I do, Simon, um, just to give us a sense of context and scale here, uh, NCVR has data on participation. Is there a clear view of participants undertaking micro-credentials and, and whether demand is growing or diminishing? Well, the first thing I'd say is there is not a clear view of that. However, we do have data a couple of things to say about that up front. One is we have only had data of the entire vet sector for about five years, so the four years from 2015 to 2018, so that's fairly recent. Uh, and secondly, we only report nationally recognised data. So Peter just referred to quality assurance and all the forms that short form credentials could take. So we only take the ones that are reported to us as nationally recognised or some people use the term accredited. But within that scope, um, there are two primary forms, if you like, of micro-credentials and in Peter's report he refers to training package skill sets and accredited courses, which are just short-form courses. If we look at them, there's been a rise of around 30-odd percent in the last four years, but they are very small numbers. So even last year, 2018, there were about 200,000 students participating, and that's out of a total of 4 million students participating. So that's one issue. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is what people report to us as a training package skill set or an accredited course. There are another 2.5 million student enrolments in subjects that are nationally recognised. And we've had a bit of a look at that, and we found that, in fact, a lot of them are skill sets, but they're just not reported that way. Okay. So it depends how you want to conceive of this, but if we accept a very broad view of what a micro-credential is, which is any unit or combination of units <laughs> that aren't a qualification, then you would end up with well over two and a half million students participating in one fashion or another. I think the trick in this conception, though, is what do we mean by credential? Mm. And that, in the case of vocational education, is what we call a statement of attainment that just says, here is something that, that outlines the units you have done, and if people want to recognise that as being a skill set or a short course or a micro-credential, well, knock yourself out. Peter, from where you sit, should the, um, the framework... Uh, be flexible? How flexible really should it be in relation to these micro-credentials? Well, it can't be, it can't be too flexible, um, Steve, in that um, what we said in the report is that, that there will actually need to be some guidance and advice. Uh, we're not seeking in our report to recommend that it all be heavily regulated. Um, and we certainly think the recommendations we've made in terms of um, having fewer bands or levels and applying them more flexibly will, will help with micro-credentials. But there does need to be clear rules and guidance around it because, for example, if, if three or four institutions take exactly the same micro-credential and give it a completely different level of credit recognition, not only in the amount of credit but the level of credit, though, band four as opposed to band five, then that will very quickly undermine the integrity of the whole system because industry, individual students and the, and the other providers, the industry people involved in the development of micro-credentials will say, well, 
how can this be? How can you have such an inconsistent outcome? And the risk then is that both the vet and higher ed standards bodies and regulators will be asked to intervene to try and bring some order and regularity to it. And I think that would be precisely the wrong way to do it. When governments have to react to poor or inconsistent practice, they, they generally get it wrong because they're trying to shut the gate after the horse has bolted. Um, so I, I think that a lot, of the hand, a lot of the way forward in this is very much in the hands of providers and institutions to behave sensibly and ethically in what they do and to not try and game or seek rapid market advantage through micro-credentials because if they do, then, um, and they particularly if they try to do it using the AQF, um, then they risk kind of bringing the whole deck of cards down. Hmm. Look, there's also quite a bit of discussion in the report about general capabilities. Uh, most stakeholders thought the AQF should list some general capabilities uh, while being careful not to make the list too big or rigid. But I also note uh, Latrobe University cautioned that uh, some general capabilities are developed differently and applied in different ways uh, according to discipline and therefore they're not suitable for broad level qualifications description for assessment for reporting and I see that along with language and literacy and numeracy skills and the core work skills digital literacy gets a mention here so if I can turn to that how would digital skills be captured in AQF taxonomy? Well, it wouldn't actually be in the taxonomy. Now, I'm going to get a bit technical here. So the AQF has got a taxonomy of different levels of knowledge and skills and the application of skills and knowledge, and we've recommended some pretty substantial changes to those. The point about a taxonomy is that it's based on increasing levels of complexity of learning and complexity of knowledge or complexity of skills. We certainly think that digital literacy should be generally referenced in, in part of the AQF and defined. But to give you a very practical example, if, it, for example, at the current level three in the AQF or level four, you had a certificate in um, cyber security or gaming or a very strongly IT-related qualification and you had a PhD in ancient Greek, which would be at level 10, one at level 12, one at level 4, where would the greater level of complexity of digital literacy sit? Well, it would sit in the level 4 qualification, not at the level 10 qualification. Mm. So in the report, we say that there are some general capabilities that should just be generally referenced and defined, and they should be then imported into qualifications as appropriate according to the level and purpose of the qualification. Others, and ones that are in, our, in the draft descriptors that the Australian Council of Educational Research work with us on, can be described more by way of a learning progression. So things like literacy can far more easily be described taxonomically, that is, with increasing levels of complexity. So general capabilities would sit in two ways in the AQF. The other thing, Steve, is that the panel was very not attracted to the idea of sticking into the AQF some of the um, capabilities that people are talking about or running with quite strongly. So things like resilience or 
emotional intelligence or a global mindset and things like that, all of which might be important in their own way for individuals or for, for particular qualifications. But they're often highly subjective um, and capable of, of changing in, in meaning and interpretation. And if they get hardwired into the AQF, the implication is they've got to be not only taught and learned, but they've got to be assessed. Personally, I think we've got to be very careful about what we say we're hardwiring into our requirements of qualifications when it starts to relate to the aptitudes and capabilities and personalities of individual people because we don't want to be in a position where we're, in fact, making personality judgments in the in the process of um, looking at at least at qualification types. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't look at personality issues in relation to particular qualifications, such as people who are training to be doctors or nurses where a high degree of empathy might be required. But let's not hardwire all those things into every qualification across the entire AQF. As a layperson sitting here listening to you share that, I would have given up much earlier on general capabilities of trying to find any way of categorizing or defining them or finding a place for them. It, uh, the nuances seem manifold. Look, I think there is no harm in, in uh, and particularly if the list isn't too long, and it does emphasize um, some important capabilities. And digital literacy would be one I have got no problem with. We also um, referenced... Um, uh, ethical decision making or ethical behaviour um, uh, that wasn't a recommendation that came from the ACR but it's already it's already there in a number of discipline outcome areas for example in law where statements about the kind of um, people we want in the work that, that general capabilities and skills and aptitudes and um, behaviours um, that are you know, essential in the modern workforce. I don't have any problem, as long as they're only listed as general references, which should then be carried through into individual qualifications and then assessed accordingly. So if you took ethical behaviour, for example, all that a university or a TAFE could do would be to say that in the process of completing the qualification, they observed all of the ethical, behavioural and ethical um, knowledge requirements to complete the qualification. That's not to say they're necessarily an ethical person. <laughs> that's a different question. And that's why I think we've got to be very careful about what it is we're saying that the education system is certifying. Similarly with resilience, resilience changes a lot. It's very context-specific. And for somebody who's not terribly resilient, it may be due to some terrible home circumstances. And the question I always ask in relation to the resilience measure is, are you really going to fail somebody because somebody judges them to not be resilient? We know learning can flow from VET to higher education and higher education to VET, as well as between the school sector and the tertiary education and training. So what did the report have to say about pathways policy? Look, the, the pathways policy in itself isn't a bad policy in the current AQF. It's, it's a bit limited and a bit short. We had a separate report commissioned by um, uh, Dan Dolo Partners, a, a good report which looked at, in practice, what's going on in both debt and in higher education. And while people were generally aware of their policy, it, 
it doesn't seem to have a lot of effect on provider behaviour. Now, I think that's for two reasons. One is it's not terribly well reflected in the overarching RTO standards or the higher education standards in both sectors. It just sort of sits apart. And secondly, it's clear that credit and pathways are essentially driven by the strategic intentions and the positioning of, of individual institutions, particularly, particularly universities. And it's always going to be difficult to overcome that, um, particularly we know that high demand higher education courses are always going to be less likely to give students credit, even if notionally they should be entitled to it. Um, what we were saying was that the policy needed to be refreshed and reframed, but that's why we think that the the testing, the development of a feasibility, uh, a prototype credit point system is worth considering as well, because that would give individuals a much clearer sense of at least what notional credit value they have achieved when they've completed a course of study or, more importantly, part of a course of study. It doesn't help, of course, for students who are just applying for RPL based on their own personal experience. A credit point system can really only work with, um, with accredited courses. If I can just pick up on that then, what are the, the proposed new qualification types or classification of VET qualifications that are contained in the report? Well, we've given two options, Steve, um, and again, we've emphasised that this needs to be considered um, along with the broader recommendations um, from the, the Joyce review into VET, which occurred in parallel. And I, and I should hasten to add, I'm now on the expert skills panel for those reforms as well. Um, what we recommended in moving to fewer bands was that one of the options would see fewer bands uh, in the qualifications delivered only by VET, that is in the what are currently the certificate level qualifications. And we suggest that those be given more meaning by talking about them as vocational certificates or advanced vocational certificates or foundation basic vocational certificates rather than just reflecting them in some sort of hierarchical numerical order. Um, and we were also keen to much more clearly differentiate the current diploma an advanced diploma, which is offered in both VET and higher ed uh, at the moment, all of the feedback, and if you look at the descriptors for the advanced diplomas and um, diplomas, they're almost in indistinguishable. By having fewer bands, you can actually more easily distinguish between qualifications. And what we recommended was that a new form of qualification be created in the form of a, a higher diploma, which could sit alongside with similar skills and knowledge requirements to a degree, but a shorter form qualification could probably be also nested directly into a degree as well. And that would give a neat sequence then of students being able to, in, in either the VET or a higher ed sectors, move through diplomas, a higher diploma, and into postgraduate certificates and postgraduate diplomas. Um, it also, I think, deals with the problem that's often reported, which is that postgraduate diplomas and certificates are often too often comprised of rebadged undergraduate knowledge um, because there's not a there's not a shorter form qualification available below the that immediately below the postgraduate level um, now I, I hasten to emphasize that we we've been very careful about 
putting those proposals forward merely as ideas because um, at the end of the day, as I've said, the how they're considered needs will, will have to be considered along with, in the vet sector at least, the broader set of vet reforms coming out of the Joyce review. They can't they can't be considered in isolation of that. But the panel felt that it would give those vet qualifications a much clearer sense of their purpose and a much clearer relationship between them rather than just calling them one, two, three, four, which is the, the, the nomenclature that's been around now for about uh, 25 years or longer. The concept strikes me as one as being complementary to the current status quo as opposed to being disruptive. Have you had any feedback? I know the government still hasn't considered this, but have you had any feedback yourself on this aspect of the report? It would require quite a few administrative changes, and we're not underestimating the effect of that. And in the industrial relations space, a number of awards um, and um, visas and things, all sorts of... I mean, the, the AQF is now referenced in something like 54 other pieces of legislation and awards. So if you change the some of the qualification types, there's a knock-on effect then of them having to be changed and in the case of industrial relations, realigned. Um, now, the panel's view, and we, we've, we've had people on the panel who are very experienced in this whole question of the alignment between industrial awards and AQF qualifications is with good faith on the side of both of the industry parties um, and grandfathering and transitional provisions. That should not be an insurmountable problem. But we're also not underestimating the degree of complexity that that involves. And um, for Simon and his colleagues at NCVR, of course, it, it would involve some pretty substantial changes to the statistical collections and the and the um, the, the time series that that reflects. Uh, Steve, the approach I took in the review, though, was the fact that the AQF in its current form is widely used doesn't mean that it can't be changed because there is complexities involved in changing it. As I said in a number of the presentations, I'm not terribly attracted to the computers. There's no approach to um, <laughs> public policy reform. Peter makes a, uh, an important point that you don't stop change just because it might be a bit hard to retrospectively fit this thing. And um, uh, whilst it does raise a few alarm bells, if we had to have a radical change in nomenclature and classification, if it's a sensible thing to do, then we have to do it. So uh, I support Peter's view there. <laughs> Yes, Minister. <laughs> uh, Professor Peter Noonan, Simon Walker, thank you very much. Thank you. Vocational Voices is produced by NCVER on behalf of the Australian Government and State and Territory Governments with funding provided through the Australian Government, Department of Employment, Skills, Small and Family Business. For more information, please visit ncver.edu.au.